Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hi, this is Rebecca. I'm a producer on this show. Before we get started, today's episode is all about Alzheimer's. It's a disease that can lead people to say some offensive things that they might not say if they were well. There's a moment in this episode where Chris remembers his dad saying one of those things, a derogatory word to refer to gay people. We wanted to give you the heads up. I, uh, I moved three years ago. I moved down to L.A. My dad got a little sick. Uh, he, he has dementia. Oh, no, don't tense up. Uh, we love him. We're taking care of him. He's making the best of it. Life handed him a lemon, and he's using it as a remote control. <laughs> My mom and I have become really close. I've become a rock, and I love it. I feel like it's a privilege. And my mom tells me everything now. It's like, mom, call me whenever you want, in the middle of the night, whatever. And she takes full advantage of it. <laughs> and recently she was like, uh, hey, so, um, Papi was very horny today. <laughs> I know. Uh, so I said, uh, She said, I can't tell people at church about this motherfucker, so listen. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll listen. She's like, Papi got very horny. He got very aggressive. He picked me up. He pushed me up against the wall. He was leaning in to kiss me, and he stopped himself, and he said, I don't know if I can do this. I have a wife and two kids. My dad tried to cheat on my mom with my mom. This is Scattered, Episode 5. Pretty much all I knew about Alzheimer's before 2007 was that Ronald Reagan had it, and it makes old people loopy. Then my dad was diagnosed with it, and I learned a lot more. I learned that Alzheimer's is a form of dementia that eats away at the brain. It messes with the protein that supports our neurons. First, it would go after my dad's hippocampus, which deals with new memories. Later, it would attack his cerebral cortex, which handles language, reasoning, and long-term memory. And it would get worse from there. He would stop talking to people. He would become incontinent. Then he would lose the ability to swallow properly, and so he might get some food or water in his lungs and that would cause an infection like pneumonia, which would probably be the thing that kills him. But when my dad was first diagnosed, that seemed far away, because he was mostly like his old self. I mean, yeah, he'd forget that he told me that story already, or sometimes he'd try to eat yogurt with a fork. But the idea that my dad would be erased bit by bit until there was, like, almost nothing left, that seemed very abstract. So I went on with my life, doing stand-up and working as a writer for a comedy startup in San Francisco. Whenever I'd call home and ask how things were going with Dad, my mom would always say the same thing. Todo bien. Everything's fine. Then one day, my dad went missing. My mom called me and wasn't sure what to do. I was like, I don't know, Mom, call the fucking police. And she was like, hey, don't cuss. 
Meanwhile, I'm 350 miles away, Googling missing man Redondo Beach, praying my dad didn't get hit by a car or drown in the ocean. Turns out he got on a bus and took it all the way to South Central LA. When the police found him, he was disoriented, but alive. My dad got worse. I started flying back home to Los Angeles more often. Finally, I was like, I think I need to move home. But I was dating someone in San Francisco. Her name was Valerie. She was six foot two to my five foot nine. And together we looked like unlikely animal friends. Like she was a giraffe and I was a baby koala. We'd go to Whiskey Wednesdays at Bender's Bar and we played on the same softball team together. I was in love. One day on my front stoop, I told her, I'm moving home to Los Angeles, and I'd love if you came with me. She said yes. And right away, she started pitching in. That first week home, me, Val, and my mom traded shifts watching my dad overnight. He had entered a phase called sundowning. That's when people with dementia have trouble sleeping and at the same time get more confused at night. It's like having a two-year-old wandering around unsupervised. I remember the first time I was on the night shift, Dad began crawling around on the floor like he was Gollum, pointing and talking gibberish. Then he took a doorknob apart and tried to put it back together. Just a few days later, he slipped in the kitchen and banged his head on the floor. Mom called an ambulance, and they went to the ER. He got violent there, started swinging at nurses, and they had to restrain him. My mom had always been anti-nursing home. But after seeing him strapped to a gurney that day, she said it was time. On his first day, Dad threw some drapes over another patient and started punching until an orderly pulled him off. So they kicked him out. We found a new place in Long Beach. It happened to have a bed available in a shared room, and my dad's pension from Rockwell would just cover the cost. Dad moved in a week later. I'm back at Brittany House for the first time in two years. Walking in, I'm hit with memories of my last visit here. My dad was in bed, really skinny and coughing constantly from the pneumonia. Yeah. Do you remember him? Yeah. I remember him and you. How's your mom? She's good. Oh, good. Yeah, she's doing real good. You know, as best as she can. You know, tough little lady. Yeah, she is. We miss her. Inside Brittany House, you got the typical nursing home decor. Pastel walls, paintings of fishing boats, and each wing has a theme. My dad was in the Hollywood wing, which was the locked ward for later-stage Alzheimer's patients. Not much has changed since I was last here. The photos of Marilyn Monroe and James Dean are still watching over the residents as they shuffle up and down the hallway. I'd come visit my dad here about twice a month, usually on Saturday. I'd play him some old Cuban songs on a stereo, and for a while, he'd even wiggle along to the music. But mostly, I'd have one-sided conversations with him, trying to catch him up on my life. Sometimes he'd smile, but I could never tell how much he really heard. I'd also try to trim his beard or get him to eat, but that didn't always go well. He'd get agitated, push me away. And then after a few hours, I'd go home. So you sit right there. Right here? Yeah. Oh, wow, I'm on TV. <laughs> <laughs> Just radio. <laughs> oh. 
Thanks so much for talking. Hey, no problem. I'm just trying to... Um... Moe Togafau was here when my dad arrived, and on the day he died. And Moe knew my dad in a way I never could. Over the course of five years, five or six days a week, he comforted my dad, changed his diapers, and fed him when he couldn't feed himself. Moe is from Samoa. He has a long graying ponytail and big football player arms with tribal tattoos. I used to do uh, warehouse management in Hawaii for 17 years. I came here, had a hard time um, getting to 2008. Economy was down. Nobody wants to hire another manager. And then this was the only job that offered me a job when I came. Never thought about Alzheimer's or dementia or none of that until I came here. Moe started out as a caregiver here and climbed the ranks to resident manager. Now he oversees a staff of 11 people each shift. I deal with all the residents, with their needs, know their background, know their history, what they used to do, what they love to do. You know, the past tells you everything. And... Yeah. Um, what, what was your first impression of my dad when he first came? Well, when he first, house? he loves to smile. Big smile. Nice smile. It was so hard to communicate with him because uh, he couldn't respond to our questions or anything. But we use a lot of hand motion so he can kind of understand, show him like here or there or <laughs> hungry. A lot of motion on the hands. But other than that, he loves to uh, fix doors. For some reason, he loved doorknobs. That's the one thing he loves. He was a mechanically inclined person, and he was a machinist and stuff. And I was just talking about how oh. at, back at the house when he started his dementia, he would start taking apart doorknobs. Oh, yeah. See, <laughs> he was always at the doorknob. Like, oh, are you trying to fix it? <laughs> um, do you remember my dad getting violent at all? Um, I think with another resident. I'm not sure if you recall him. Oh, I remember, yeah. The guy gets agitated, so I guess your dad got into his face, too. And the ego between two men, you got to <laughs> get into there and try to stop him. The memory's gone, yeah. but the ego is yeah. alive and well and present. Because one is from Mexico and one is from Cuba, and then there, there you go. <laughs> the rivalry is The rivalry strong. is starting. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, you know. Do you ever remember who my dad would call for or any conversations oh, in? a lot of time. Martha. My mom's name is actually Ana Madda, and sometimes she goes by Madda. I, I probably saw it one time upset at your mom. I'm not sure. But other than that, he has a big smile every time she walks through that door or that hallway. He knows that she's here now. But... I don't remember. There's another name he was calling. Do you have a sister? Laura. Oh, Laura. Okay, that's the name. He didn't say Chris? He didn't say my name? <laughs> <It is. laughs> there's, I know it's two female. I know Martha because yeah. Martha comes here. This interview is over. How did you think he changed over time from when he first got to Brittany House to the end? Uh, when he first came, he loves to eat. Well, in the end part... 
he started resisting food. Like, what is going on? And that's when um, the hospice started coming in and stuff. And then I know it started going down and down. It's when he stopped eating. That's, that's the difference. But is it hard for you to see him or other people decline Most like that? Most of them. It's... You tend to get attached to them. You know, I treat like everybody, like my family. My mom was like this for a year and a half. Nothing we can do. We couldn't understand why she was, she was like that, but, you know... I feel the pain. Be able not to communicate what they want, what they need. It's so hard to understand that part. You know, I've been around nine years here. Good people just, you know, not be able to end their life normally. Like, some people can. I don't know. I wish I can, you know, reverse the disease. This is, there's a lot of struggles through the family, too. Some of them don't, don't know them no more. It's, it's a difficult thing to, to see, you know, when a family member don't know their family. It's hard. By 2015, my dad didn't know who I was. I remember visiting him at Brittany House the morning of my wedding to Val. He was too sick to come. I was crying, and he was patting me on my back, smiling, like he was trying to cheer me up. Maybe he sensed I was his son, but he probably just thought I was someone who needed comforting. So visiting hours are almost over, and we, my, they roll my dad back into his room, and he's in his bed, and my mom starts praying, you know, that's what she does, she's a little old, little old Cuban lady, she's praying, she's holding him, and my dad's just looking at nothing. My mom's... She lost her virginity to my dad. <laughs> that wasn't part of the story. It just popped into my head. But, um, but it's true. Um, but they've been together for over 50 years. They've been married for 50 years now. And she, that's her high school sweetheart. And she's just looking at him crying. And they're like, okay, you got to go. And my dad just pops out of it for a second. He, like, notices my mom's purse. And he, like, grabs it. And he looks up, and he goes, Matika, Anna. And it's such a beautiful sight to see this. My mom starts crying. My sister is crying. The nurse is crying. I'm trying not to cry. So my dad's a tough guy. He would hate to see me cry. So I'm like, cool. 
cool. My dad takes my mom's hand, kisses her on the hand. He reels her in, gives her a kiss on the lips. Everyone's bawling at this point because it's such a beautiful moment. I'm trying not to cry, so I just like lean over and I pat my dad on the back like a bro or something. Like I'm giving like, nice play, bro. I'm like that. And my dad looks over to me and he goes, who's this Mexican faggot? You have to laugh at that. <laughs> I want to play for you a voicemail from my mother. It's called to tell you something funny. Dad's doing very well. <laughs> I left the home because Dad wanted to give me a quickie. A quickie in case you didn't barf the first time, son. I'll see you later, alligator. <laughs> and then she goes, see you later, alligator. Like she's got a catchphrase, like she's Larry the Cable Guy. How cute is your dad? It's just his brain, but he's still very much in love with me. Okay. <laughs> I had to leave because he wanted to give me the cannon. <laughs> it would, it's so you would laugh. The power of love, everyone. Good night. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Towards the end of my dad's life, we were visiting him almost every day. At a certain point, he'd stopped eating and was just totally unresponsive. But my dad was such a fighter his whole life, we refused to believe the doctors. So we were all there, and um, Wednesday came around, and they're like, your dad has 24 hours. You guys don't want to go anywhere. 24 hours would pass. And on, I think, Wednesday and Thursday, my sister and I were like, he's going to make his birthday, which is birthday for Saturday. Uh-huh. And they were like, uh, your dad's going to, it's Thursday. I mean, it's He's not going to make it till nighttime. And then we're like, no, yeah, I think Poppy's going to make it. And not only did he make it to Saturday, he made it to the next day. In Super Bowl. To have my dad suffer for such a long time and see him not be himself, he was able, the moment he passed, it was like a calm washed over all of us because 
he didn't have to. He could be himself again. No tenía sufrir más. He didn't have to be confused anymore. He didn't have to, you know, become uh, violent out of the blue like people with dementia come confused and lose his dignity and his functions and his faculties and his memories. He, it, yo creo que sí un poquito, yo sé que no dio mucho paz, a ver, papi, pasan. It's given us a lot of calm, but it hasn't been easy. Yeah, we had a nice service, and I really, I remember, I remember, I was like, I'm going to go, this is going to go in here, and this eulogy, I'm going to crush this thing. I was like, I have given a million toasts at weddings. I talk about my dad so much on stage. I'm going to go up here, and I am just going to give the talk of my life about how much my dad meant, and I... I was so distracted by how much I ate it, <laughs> like, because I just started crying, and I lost my shit, and I couldn't finish anything, that during other people's eulogies, I was thinking about if I can go back up again, <laughs> like a comedian would after a bad set. My sister, who is not a public speaker, goes up and she cleans up, and that, it like drove me crazy. <laughs> but that comedian drive and stage time never goes away, even, if, even at your own dad's funeral. <laughs> It's been two and a half years since the day I bombed the eulogy at my dad's funeral. I've rewritten that moment in my head so many times. A single dignified tear rolls down my cheek. The crowd is hushed, utterly transfixed. I open with a story about my dad, like how he secretly did my science projects for me, so I was the only seventh grader with a workable solution for preventing another Exxon Valdez oil spill. The crowd laughs. Then I switch gears. I talk about what my dad sacrificed for our family, what he meant to us. People start to cry. But then I close on a joke so everyone could have a final laugh through their tears. Afterward, everyone lines up to tell me how much better my speech was than my sister's. After the funeral, I wanted to be the one to keep my dad's ashes. They're in my closet, in a plastic bag inside of a cardboard box. Sometimes I take them out so I can talk to my dad. Once I even took them to a bar to watch the World Series. I put his old Dodgers hat on the box, and I sat it on the stool next to me. I ordered two beers, drank them both. But lately the box has gone from a comforting companion to a daily reminder of the promise to him we haven't fulfilled, to go to Cuba and scatter his ashes into the ocean. My mom is at my house to see the old man and to talk about what comes next. I'm going into the uh, our closet in our spare bedroom, I guess my office, and gonna grab my dad's ashes. Uh, which are behind this Paul McCartney record <laughs> and a giant um, mask of gizmo from the gremlins. <laughs> Aquí está, Aquí está. 
Okay, racing. Los Inurned Remains de Andrés García. Fecha de muerte 0205-2017. Es muy triste tener a mi esposo aquí, que estoy viendo la realidad que ya es una ceniza que ya no existe. It's very sad to have my husband here, to see that he's just ashes, that he doesn't exist anymore. Y por eso no quería que lo dejaran en, en Cuba. Quisiera tenerlo. ¿Por qué no? Porque son cosas que después no voy a tocarlo más la caja, ni voy a ver a su ceniza. She's scared to take him to Cuba because then she can't even see his ashes anymore. I want to keep you. Yo no voy a ver más a papi. ¿Tú entiendes? Entonces, yo quisiera tener un recuerdo de él. Yo sé que no está con nosotros, pero yo sé que está el cuerpo de él aquí. Toda su vida, su corazón y todo. Está aquí. ¿Tú entiendes? She says, don't you get it? I want to have something of his. He might not be with us, but his body's in here. His life, his heart, everything is in here. Y que, y que nunca, se me va, nunca se nos va a olvidar y que lo quiero mucho. But we'll never forget him. Lo quiero. I love him. Lo quería. I loved him. Y lo querré. I will always love him. Me pongo sad porque yo sé que esta caja llena de esta ceniza con un sticker aquí que dice fecha de su muerte. Es prueba que está muerto y que no voy a verlo otra vez. Pero todavía me siento atachado. Esa es la palabra. Um, pegado. Me siento Muy... pegado a estas cenizas. Y no sé si eso es bueno o sí. es malo. I say yes, I get it. I'm attached to his ashes too. But seeing them also makes me sad. They're a constant reminder that he's gone. En una manera, es la, la última página de un cuento bonito. El cuento, la historia de papi. Pero también yo no quiero que, yo no quiero que este libro pare. Yo no quiero que el libro termine. El libro es la historia de papi, pero to, no sé si importa si está aquí las cenizas o no. I tell my mom that scattering the ashes would be a nice final chapter to my dad's story. It's not that I'm ready for the story to end, but I know it's what he wanted. Entonces, vamos a ponerlo, vamos a tener que reunirnos, Laura, tú y yo, para decidir. She says, let's meet with your sister and we'll figure this out. In the meantime, she'd like to take a turn with the box. She says she wants to take his ashes home today, to her place. I'm crying because... I know I cry like that, Mom. But I'm crying right now because I... I didn't think it would be so hard, hard to part with these ashes, even just from my place to my mom's place, you know, 40 minutes away. I don't... Que lo que decidas tú, papá, yo no voy a obligarte. Take them. Yeah, llévatelo. It's okay. Take them. My mom puts on her coat, 
puts the box of ashes into a plastic bag and crawls into a lift. The driver has no idea there's a dead guy in his car. They drive off into the famous L.A. traffic, and I put on my gizmo mask and weep. Two weeks later, we're sitting at my sister Laura's kitchen table. Yo estuve hablando, eh, orando al Señor. Yo tenía que le poner al Señor. Entonces llega una, llega un punto en que yo no soy para dejarlo en una jaula. Él quiso que lo dejaran libre. No es mi, no es mi derecho tenerlo encerrado. Si él quería ir al mar, tengo que dejar su voluntad. My mom says she's been praying on it. She's decided she wants Dad to be free. She says she doesn't want to keep him in a cage anymore. That if he wanted to go to the sea, that's his decision. All of it has to go, she announces. I don't want to keep even a little bit of him. It's time to close this chapter. I understood Dad more when I lived in Costa Rica. Because, um, My sister Laura did missionary work in Costa Rica. I understood dad's wishes. Um, and what I mean by that is that you could be in a foreign country and you could love the country, but at the heart level, you're not there. So what I think for dad, oftentimes he would say, look, I, I love everything about this country. I love its ideals. I love its foundations, its principles. I love it. But at the end of the day, I'm not American. I'm Cuban. My mom turns to me. Yo estoy a favor for sure. I'm thinking, Mom, yeah, I'm the one who thought this podcast should be called Scattered. 100%? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. My mom smiles, and we start making plans. We don't want my dad confiscated at the airport in Havana. She says people have told her to sneak the ashes in a bottle of talcum powder or a box of cigarettes. That seems shady to me. That sounds like that that seems like it could be it could be yes. seen as ashes or drugs or something. Yeah. You know? I know. I know. To even to leave the country or to go through customs and they find it, that sounds. Laura suggests that before investing in talcum powder, we see if there's a legit way in. I'm on it. I call the airline to ask if they've got restrictions, and I end up on hold for what feels like a century, so I hang up. I call a funeral home in Miami that says it could handle the logistics, but they charge $745? Not gonna happen. I call the Cuban embassy in D.C., they email me some forms, but original cremation certificate, form 13-30. I got to bring a notary public into this. Fuck it. We're sneaking the dude in. Left town, an ocean on town. Blue tie, an orange one left. Please won't please Blush now 
Scattered is a production of WNYC Studios. And if you can't get enough of the show, follow us on Instagram at Scattered Podcast, where you can see the gizmo mask for yourself, along with some very cute videos of Anna. Daniel Guimet and Rebecca Ibarra produced the show with editing by Joanna Solitaroff, Jenny Lawton, and Paula Schumann. The show is executive produced by Paula and me, Chris Garcia. Our technical director is Joe Plord, and the music is by Hannes Brown and Isaac Jones. Fact-checking by Zoe Sullivan. Our intern is Jennifer Sanchez. Our theme song is Please Won't Please by Elado Negro, courtesy of Revenge International. Special thanks to KCRW's Unfictional and Colleen Rosati at Brittany House. And for days now, I'll wait around. Thank you.